I want to encourage you to take your Bible out that you brought with you or the Bible that's there in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible and, and, or have a, someone else in your life who needs one, please feel free to take that Bible in the pew when you're done here with us today. Take it with you as our gift. But open up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. And as you're getting there, you may or may not have realized or, or been a part of it, but this past Wednesday, we gathered together in this space to reflect, as we only do once a year in that unique way, We gather to reflect on the ashes of our mortality, the reality of our lives apart from God. And out of those ashes, as is our custom on this day, we received those ashes in the sign of the cross, bearing the mark of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We once again started on Ash Wednesday, the journey of Lent, a time set apart centuries ago in the church for renewal in our relationship with God. And I said then, and I'd like to say now, in case you weren't with us, that over these next 40 days, as we journey towards Easter, what we're going to do is we're going to experience some close encounters with Jesus through some select passages in the Gospel of Luke. Together, we're going to retrace Jesus' steps, not out of nostalgia, but in the belief, in the understanding, Jesus still walks with us. We, together, will retell Jesus' encounters with particular people in order to recognize how Jesus still engages and reveals himself to us in the particularity of our lives today. And what I hope we discover during this series is encountering Jesus changes us like no one else. We are, when we meet, encounter Christ, no longer the same person we once were. Truly engaging the person of Jesus makes an impression on us that reorients the image of God within us, that leads us to reflect the character of Christ toward others. We're in Luke, but for a moment consider the Apostle John, who wrote perhaps the most succinct and unanimous testimony of the gospel, one that we all probably have committed to memory, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to save it. John will later add in his first letter to the church that this word of love heard from God is a word, the word that became flesh. John, he writes, and the rest of the first disciples walked beside, they touched with their hands, they looked with their eyes into the face of such love, the face of God in Christ. Encountering Jesus brought the love of God up close and personal to them. And love like that changed them. And today, in the Gospel of Luke, through the story of one lone, courageous, and unnamed woman, we are going to encounter this kind of love, this love that is the very person of Christ. Here in the Gospel of Luke, on this Valentine's Day Sunday, we find a love story. It's a love story that, as we're about to read, unfolds surprisingly and unexpectedly at a dinner party. If you're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, I'm going to be reading from verses 36 through 50. Join me in taking in the scriptures this morning. Luke writes, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, And poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. 
Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's set the table, as it were, to better appreciate this scene. Back in the first century, a dinner party like this would be the result of a respected host inviting several of the, shall we say, socially elite to have dinner with a special guest. And what we have here is Simon, a respected religious leader, a Pharisee, invites the up-and-coming young rabbi Jesus to his house for a public meal. Something else that you need to understand is a formal affair like this one would involve a series of discussions and debates on a variety of theological issues, all being oriented, of course, around the input of the guest. And another thing I need you to visualize is how first century homes are different than the kind of homes we build today. First century homes, particularly those of people with means, with wealth, were built with a semi-public area of the house. So if you think about it, constructed in this way, such homes enabled people standing on the street to look in, to observe, and even listen in on the conversation and the dialogue. Now, you may not remember, but up until this point in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has continually emphasized that Jesus' entourage is kind of growing. He's getting quite a following. So you can imagine in this moment that there's quite the crowd of people looking and listening in intently on the dinner conversation. Now, Luke further gives us some description of this, which I think is important for us to enter in. He tells us that Jesus was reclined at the table, like all the guests were. And and this is a very typical Eastern style of dining, not one that we're typically used to. It's where, if you picture it, guests are around a very low table, much, much lower than the tables we have in our houses where we eat. A very low table where the guests would recline on their left arm and then be supported by cushions, leaving their right hand to feed themselves. Each guest's feet, their sandals, of course, removed, would be spread out behind them with uh, some space between their feet and the wall so that those who were serving the meal could bring the various dishes to the table. This is, by the way, if you're picturing it, the likely arrangement at the Lord's Supper where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples reclining around the table. So this is to help, help us better visualize the picture that Luke sets before us. But right away, this scene is interrupted by the entrance of an unnamed woman. Luke does not tell us her name. All we are told is that she is a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, the likely inference being she was a prostitute. This woman, Luke goes on to tell us, learned that Jesus was at Simon's house, so she came there purposefully. It's likely that this woman for a time was standing in that public area, listening in on the conversation, and and looking for an opening to enter. 
And yet Luke makes it clear, despite any effort on her part to be unobtrusive, this woman's presence interrupts the dinner and her actions draw the attention of everyone. Now it's interesting to me, really interesting. There are no recorded words spoken by this woman. And it's interesting because as we'll soon learn from Jesus, her actions speak for themselves. Volumes, in fact. She wants to make contact with Jesus, but being able to only get so close to him, this woman literally throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And then she proceeds to demonstrate her extravagant devotion to Christ. She weeps, Luke tells us. And to clarify, the Greek word that's used here to describe her crying means rain. So she rains down tears on the feet of Jesus, more than enough to wash his feet. And this woman then proceeds to wipe and dry off Jesus' feet with her hair. And as she does so, Luke tells us she kisses them repeatedly and anoints Jesus' feet with the perfumed oil that she's brought. Overwhelmed with both emotion and purpose, this woman offers Jesus a shameless expression of her love. And at the same time, Luke immediately lets us know Simon the host finds all of this quite shameful. Simon is very put off by all this PDA, this public display of affection. He deems this very woman's presence in his home as offensive. And, and again, step back for a second. Like all good hosts, Simon worked hard to get his house ready for this party. Like, you know, you clean your house from top to bottom. You want to create a certain atmosphere for others. You desire to convey a specific impression to your guests. And particularly as a devout Jew, Simon has worked to ensure his home conformed to the demands of ritual cleanliness, holiness, and purity. And then along comes this woman of repute, a known sinner, interrupting the sanctity of their gathering and inappropriately touching the guest of honor, a fellow rabbi. Not only is Simon repulsed by this sinner who barges in and acts so shamefully in his estimation, he's disgusted ashamed Jesus would allow all of this to go on without incident or rebuke. Simon is so put off by all of this, he even begins to question whether Jesus is a prophet. Now notice, Simon doesn't say any of this. He just thinks it to himself, that Jesus must not be a prophet. But it's interesting, a little sidebar, what happens next in knowing Simon's thoughts, doesn't Jesus demonstrate per Simon's criteria that he is a prophet? But Simon still fumes. Men sent from God don't allow this sort of thing to happen. However, as Luke knows, and as we know, Jesus is not just a man of God. He is God himself. And the Lord has a story to share with Simon. It's pretty straightforward. We don't have to know the value of a denarii to get it. But just in case you were wondering, a denarii is about a day's wages. The key, thing here, the, key, the key thing here is that one person owes a lender more than the other, but they are both in the same boat. They both can't pay back what they owe, and the lender forgives both debts. Jesus then asks Simon, now, which of them will love him more? And Simon addresses the answer, he addresses the question correctly. Simon says, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Simon answers the question correctly, but Simon doesn't realize how through his answer he indicts himself. 
Beloved, there are three insights that I want us to take away from this story today. Three things that I want us to see. I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we're going to go through them one by one. Three things I want us to see from this story, this encounter with Jesus. The first, our unforgiveness toward others gets in the way of receiving the forgiveness we are offered in Christ. That's one. Second, our experience of true forgiveness in Christ results in our shameless love of Christ. And three, our shameless love towards Christ makes visible Jesus' offer of forgiveness to all, all persons. Those are our three insights. Let's take them one by one. First, the unforgiveness we hold toward others gets in the way of the forgiveness we ourselves need to receive. It gets in the way of the forgiveness we're invited to embrace from Christ. Simon is a man in this scene unaware of just how much he has in common with this woman. This is the point of Jesus' story. And as a consequence of his blindness, this woman has something Simon doesn't. This is really important for us to see. You could miss it because it's very subtle. If you have your Bible open, I want you to notice something. This woman doesn't come to Jesus to be forgiven. She comes because she believes she is forgiven by Christ. Why does she believe this? How does she believe this? Maybe while Jesus was in town earlier, she heard Jesus teaching and looked into his eyes and the Spirit's prompting. And by the Spirit's prompting, she saw the compassion he had for her. Maybe she heard from someone else, someone else's testimony about their experience with Christ. And she realized again through the prompting of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Who knows how or why? All we know is this woman was so overwhelmed by her forgiveness thanks to Jesus, which Jesus later on affirms at the end of this story. You're right. Yes, your faith has saved you. All we know is she's so overwhelmed by her forgiveness thanks to Jesus that she comes out of love to express her devotion to Christ. And once again, the love that she displays here is shameless. It's, it's unfiltered. It's not tasteless or showy or manipulative. It's honest. It's raw. It's real. This woman is not concerned about social conventions, about keeping up appearances. This woman doesn't worry about her image or her reputation. All she cares about, all she is concerned about is loving Jesus. Simon's love, on the other hand, is filtered. Not unfiltered, but filtered. It's tainted by his own unforgiveness, his own sense of superiority over others, particularly this woman. I'm not saying here that Simon thought he was perfect and without sin. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that Simon imagined he had no sin. What I'm pointing out is here in this scene, rather than focusing and on drawing closer to Jesus, getting as near to Christ as he possibly could, Simon is revealed to be too busy separating himself from others, those he deemed more sinful and therefore less worthy than himself. Simon is so focused on the great debt of this woman, this sinner, that he ends up distancing himself from the very forgiveness he needs too. And this becomes obvious in this story, in this moment, when I'm sure much to his surprise, instead of correcting this woman, Jesus rebukes Simon. My friends, unforgiveness in our lives, 
our unforgiveness toward others gets in the way of receiving the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. I didn't plan it this way, but I find it very, very interesting that this dovetails so nicely off of the end of our sermon series on Obadiah, where we were focusing on unforgiveness. Here it is again. The unforgiveness in our lives creates an obstruction, an obstacle to receiving the forgiveness that's ours, thanks to Jesus. My friends, we hit this again. Is unforgiveness in your life, is your or my discrimination toward others getting in the way of embracing the forgiveness that Jesus offers us? I mean, again, isn't it easier? Isn't it more self-satisfying to focus on what his or her problem is, where that person needs to shape up, how they ought to correct themselves? Aren't we all tempted at times to say, God forbid, maybe even to pray? Well, thank God I'm not like that murderer, not like that terrorist, not like that felon, that atheist, that backslider, that gossip, that blowhard, that arrogant jerk. Don't we prefer to compare ourselves to others rather than to truly face ourselves as we are? See, this is the thing, and it builds off of last week, and here it is. Unforgiveness towards others can only be maintained in our lives by finding someone who is, in our estimation, a worse sinner than us. Unforgiveness can only be maintained by finding someone who, in our estimation, is a worse sinner than us. And now, most of us never consciously think of it that way. We never position it that way. I don't think that Simon did that. What we do is we just tell ourselves in our unforgiveness that we're just focused on the other person's need for Jesus. But the truth is, we're not really, we're not really coming from a place of genuine concern for them, are we? We're using them to fuel our own sense of self-righteousness. Humanly speaking, we can choose to get into this game of comparison. It's very popular. We can choose to get into this game of comparison. You know, their sins are bigger or greater than mine. And let's, be, let's call it out. Let's say it. There's no denying that some people practice some really bad behaviors. Drunkenness, deception, corruption, debauchery of various sorts. Whereas other people lead relatively more respectable lives. They've never cheated on their taxes. They've never killed anyone. They've never maliciously hurt or taken advantage of another person. But here's the thing. To play the comparison game misses the point of the gospel. All of our goodness, our supposed goodness, our relative goodness, compared to, again, the so-called really bad people, is just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't even scratch the surface of what we owe God, of what we take for granted from God. My friends, the problem of sin isn't a problem of degree, how bad or how much we sin. The problem of sin is a problem of debt. We owe everything to God, and yet we come up short every time. Even the respectable people, even the religious people are unable to pay what they owe. And you might say, well, what do we, what do we owe? What, what? What do we owe? What do we owe? We ought to fully give God what God is due. And we ought to cover our expenses. What that means is we ought to make amends for all we deny or refuse to provide that belongs to the Lord. In other words, what do we owe? Everything everything. So right out of the gate, the first insight here is what we all have in common, whether we like it or not, what we all have in common, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we think ourselves so, the so-called good or bad sort of people, 
What we all have in common is a debt we can't pay. And therefore, the forgiveness from God we all need. Simon here, don't miss this, in addressing Jesus' question, demonstrates he knows the right answer. He knows the right response. But the thing is, his actions reveal he's failing to live out the implications of that answer. In not fully perceiving his need for forgiveness and embracing it in Christ, Simon, instead of finding himself empowered to love shamelessly, actually finds himself acting shameful in his treatment of both Jesus and this woman. Jesus points it right out that there's this quite the contrast between Simon and this woman. That even though Jesus is Simon's guest in his home, it is this sinful woman who offers Jesus the expected hospitality. And, and again, I, that's another insight for us to see what happens, what this woman does is not coincidental. It's not accidental either. There, there's a, a certain code, an expectation of hospitality to be given to a guest in your home. You can go all the way back to Genesis. It doesn't stop there. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 18, 29, 45. Take your pick and you'll find a boilerplate expectation in terms of receiving a guest. Guest comes into your home, to your space. You provide for washing their feet. You anoint their head. You offer them an affectionate embrace with a kiss. And what's revealed here is Simon, his concern for the ritual purity of his house, his dinner party, ought to be matched by his hospitality toward his guest of honor. In Simon's tradition, showing the proper hospitality towards a guest in one's home was as much of a debt or an obligation as anything else. And yet Simon did not show Jesus even the most basic common courtesies. This sinful woman expressed more hospitality to, and love to Jesus than Simon did. Out of her profound awareness, again, of her forgiveness, this woman loved Jesus shamelessly. And out of his own blindness to his need for forgiveness, Simon, on the other hand, acted shamefully. Simon's shame is exposed by his own answer to Jesus' question. What is exposed is he knows better. He knows what is right, but chooses what is wrong, what is selfish. He not only denies God what God is due through his lack of hospitality towards another person, Jesus, he also burdens another person, this woman, with judgment that is not his to pass through his lack of love. Our unforgiveness gets in the way of receiving the very forgiveness that we are offered in Christ. Our second insight in this story comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. When Jesus says, those who have been forgiven little, love little. Here's how it breaks down, the second idea. The greater our awareness of our forgiveness thanks to Jesus, the greater our love expressed towards Jesus to unpack it even further, the presence of forgiveness in our life, our embrace of the forgiveness we have received from Jesus, our capacity to forgive others in the name of Jesus is reflected through the extent of our devo devotion towards Jesus. It, I, I'm gonna tell you right now, if you wanna know, and I left this with this last week, how much unforgiveness you're wrestling with in your life, just look at the level of your devotion to Jesus the expression of your love towards Christ. There's gonna be a, a direct relationship here. We often try to disconnect them and they're inseparable in this story. 
We look at a woman like this, we look at this picture and it's extraordinary, it's extravagant and we might ask, how do we love like this? How do we, how do, how, how, how do we love Jesus like that? And it's so important you don't miss this. We can't on our own. This woman doesn't love like this on her own. She loves th this way because she has received the forgiveness of Christ. It has penetrated her life. We just said this at this ba the baptism we just did. We say it every time. We heard these words said over Carly, and they're said over you when you come into baptism. We love because Christ first loved us. Love like this that we see here isn't something we generate from within by working ourselves up with emotion or bending our will. Love like this is born within us through our helper, our counselor, the Holy Spirit. Shameless love like this is kindled within us from a deepening awareness of the shameless love Christ has demonstrated towards us. To hit this again, we can only appreciate the love of Jesus as much as we appreciate our own sin, our debt. If we think we're only mildly offensive to God, then Jesus for us is no more than a Band-Aid to cover up the scratch. Jesus is just some Febreze we use to hide the smell. If you judge your relationship with God based on what you perceive your debt to be relative to someone else, you're not embracing a relationship with Jesus based on forgiveness. You're trying to make a deal with God based on economies of scale. And you're going to find yourself left empty-handed and self-incriminated like Simon. Beloved, when we say, I don't need Jesus as much as so-and-so, what we are really saying is, I don't need Jesus. But on the other hand, through the prompting and conviction of the Holy Spirit, as we are in the word, as we participate in worship, that's why we're here. When we realize and reflect on the depths and costs of our sin, when we honestly consider the evil we're capable of, the death we deal in, the living hell we create apart from God's intervention, we will embrace and cling to the forgiveness that is offered to us in Christ. When again, through the conviction and prompting of the Holy Spirit, as we're in the word, as we're on our knees in prayer, as we participate like this in worship, and as we consider just how far Jesus was willing to go to save us, that Jesus doesn't distance himself from us, he draws closer to us, even in our guilt and shame. When we reflect on how much Jesus purposefully and yet undeservedly bore for us, that he not only clears our debt, he incurs it. He carries that debt. He pays that debt in full for us. When we reflect how without hesitation or reservation, Jesus humbled and subjected himself to the worst we could do to him so he could do the best for us all. If we let that valentine, that is the cross of Christ, sink in, get under our skin, into our heart, blow our mind and shake our souls, our fears will die and the true resurrected love of Christ will rise up within us. My friends, when's the last time you have just sat in the shameless love that God has revealed for you in Christ? I didn't plan it. I couldn't have planned it. It's Valentine's Day and today, or maybe leading up today, some of us have been driving ourselves crazy to show the people we love how much we love them. And some of us are so sick of it, maybe we even rebel against the whole thing. 
But it's ironic that we have this day set aside to reflect on the, on the love that we receive and the love we have from others. When's the last time you took a day to just, I mean, sit in it? And I mean it, just sit in it. The shameless love that Christ has for you. I mean, to let it wash over you. I mean, to really let it get inside you. Because when that love really gets in, impacts you, it changes you. It changes how we love. This woman, this unnamed woman, her shameless love for Jesus was but a reflection of Jesus' unconditional and shameless love for her. Don't you see that? By faith, this woman believed the Lord's opinion of her, that she was forgiven, that she was worth dying for. Do you believe that? Not intellectually, in every fiber of your being, do you believe you are forgiven? Do you understand what that means, what that costs? Do you believe you were worth dying for? Because this woman took Jesus' opinion of herself rather than her own, rather than anyone else's, and in so doing, there was this love awakened within her own heart for Christ. My friends, the greater our awareness of our forgiveness from Christ, the greater our love expressed towards Christ. Are we loving Jesus shamelessly? Without pretense or preoccupation? Are we loving Jesus shamelessly without being self-conscious or concerned with the judgment of others? And let me again be clear, I'm not talking about false piety. I'm not talking about hyper-emotionalism in worship. What I'm talking about when I talk about the shameless love of Christ is I'm asking, are we having an authentic vulnerability before God? Being fully transparent about our brokenness as well as our utter dependence upon the Lord's grace. What I'm talking about is where we bear no pride in ourselves apart from Jesus. Our pride is directed towards, our pride stems from knowing and depending on Christ. Are we loving Jesus shamelessly? And if we're not, do you realize God's shameless love for you in Christ? Because the thing is, we talk a lot about forgiveness but as I said on Ash Wednesday that I'm going to repeat again, we talk a lot about forgiveness in the church. That's our calling card, our hallmark. We talk a lot about forgiveness, but the thing is, we can't see forgiveness. And we, the world can hear a lot about how we're forgiven and they can be forgiven too. The world, we tell them that all the time, how we're forgiven and you can be forgiven too. But here's the thing, the world can't see the forgiveness of Christ. All that we can see, all that the world can see is the transformation forgiveness makes in and through us. And this brings us to the last insight I want us to take from this story. The reality, the truth of forgiveness in Christ is revealed public through our transformation as shameless lovers for Christ. It is our profuse love for Jesus that is the single greatest proof visible to people of the truth of the gospel, that forgiveness is offered to all through Jesus. And the contrast, therefore, is also true. An ungrateful, unforgiving, and therefore loveless Christian undercuts the testimony of the gospel and denies the singularity of Jesus. If you're hot and bothered that Jesus is the only way to heaven, if you're hot and bothered that people don't believe the truth in the gospel, stop worrying about them and start looking at your own heart. Start looking at your own awareness of the forgiveness you have received in Christ. Start looking at how that has penetrated you and how you are loving others. 
Because if you let that shameless love of Christ be unleashed within you, the Spirit pushes it with, out of us. If you allow that, trust me, people will know. People will come to believe. Salvation will come. It's so interesting to me. Jesus literally points to this woman in this story. And I think he points beyond Simon. He points to us. He points to this woman as clear testimony to his power to transform a life. He points to her as a witness to Simon of the transforming power of his truth. Her forgiveness, her salvation is evident not by something she said. She doesn't say anything. Her salvation, her forgiveness is evident through her unabashed love towards God through Jesus. Now, the kicker in preparing for the sermon that hit me between the eyes that I've been waiting to share with you that just, I think, brings home this final point. What Simon refuses to see, what Simon refuses to see here is not just this woman's awareness of her forgiveness that's revealed through her love towards Christ. That's not the only thing Simon fails to see. Be with me on this. The kicker is Simon also fails to see how her representation through her love of Christ's forgiveness is his forgiveness in Christ. What I'm getting at here, what we may not have noticed, is this woman in her love conveyed towards Jesus actually covers Simon's debt here. Do you see that? She does what he didn't, what Simon failed to do. Simon, the host, right, gave no water to wash Jesus' feet. This woman covers this lack of hospitality through the giving of her tears. Simon, the host, provided no towel to dry Jesus' feet. This woman gives use of her hair. Simon, the host, offered no kiss or anointing of Jesus' head. This woman covers this social disgrace by repeatedly kissing Jesus' feet through the offering of the expensive perfume that she's brought. By the way, the offering of the expensive perfume that once she used in her trade, that she poured over her body, she now pours over the feet of Christ as an anointing. You can't get a more beautiful picture of both repentance and transformation than that moment right there. Now, I really want to have you understand this. I'm not saying that I think this woman consciously did all these things for Simon. That's the beauty. That's the kicker here. I'm not suggesting at all that this woman was trying to cover anything for Simon. She was just focused on loving Jesus. But here's the thing. It was the byproduct of her love expressed towards Jesus that covered Simon's sin. You hear me, church? When we love Christ with that shameless love that he makes us capable of loving, when we love him through our love of others, we cover the sins of others. And it's not us. It's the love of Christ covering the sins of others. All the things Simon as the host never provided through a servant here, this woman provides as through loving Jesus, she not only serves Jesus but becomes Simon's servant. And my friends, what I want you to leave with today is like this woman today, this unnamed woman, through our love towards Jesus, we serve others. Through our love, unshameless love towards Jesus, we make the forgiveness of Christ visible to the world. This is just the first stop in our journey. We got a lot more encounters with Jesus coming. But as we leave this dinner party today, I want us to remember the contrast between Simon and this woman in their encounter with Christ. I want us to remember 
Our forgiveness, our unforgiveness towards others prevents us from experiencing the forgiveness we are offered in Christ. I want us to remember that our experience of the true forgiveness that we have in Christ breeds shameless love for Christ. It just exudes out of us. And that shameless love towards Christ, I want us to remember when we allow it to just come out of us towards others, it makes Jesus' offer of forgiveness visible to everyone. I wish I could tell you that in my brilliance, I set this up for Valentine's Day. I did not, I just, I laid it out. I didn't even realize it was Valentine's Day. But here we are with this story on Valentine's Day. And what I want to say to us, to me, to you, to us together, is today, let's not forget the most important Valentine we've ever received. Delivered in person. And while its message of love communicates no less than be mine or forget me not, the good news, my friends, the good news, beloved, is that the Valentine of Christ conveys infinitely so much more. It says all is forgiven. And out of such forgiveness, real love is possible. Out of such forgiveness, true love meets us in the flesh. Love may be in the air today, but divine love is always shamelessly on display on the cross. With arms stretched out wide, God in Christ gives us everything he's got. And God's gift to us is not chocolates or flowers or teddy bears. His gift to us is his heart, his son, his life, shamelessly offered to win us back, to bring us home. So not just today, but every day of our lives, inspired and empowered by such forgiveness, may our love towards Christ be no less shameless in its devotion to Jesus and no less shameless in our service to each other. Amen.